If God is the greatest possible being, as all Muslims believe he is, then he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love. And he would express the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. And if he didn't do that, then he wouldn't be the greatest possible being. Well, what is the greatest possible way to express love? It's not a mystery. It's self-sacrifice. And so if God does not express himself in self-sacrifice, but we humans can express love through self-sacrifice, and we can express love greater than God, and that cannot be possible. So I found myself thinking the cross is not an insult to God's greatness. It is a demonstration of God's greatness because it is the greatest possible expression of the greatest possible ethic, which is love. And when I realized that, I gave my life to Christ. This is Charisma Connection on the Charisma Podcast Network. I'm Chris Johnson. It is an honor to have Abdul Murray with us today. He is Senior Vice President of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And he was an attorney, he still is an attorney, and was named several times in Best Lawyers in America and Michigan's Super Lawyer. I love that. He also hosts the podcast, The Defense Rests, which you can find at rzim.org. He co-authored with Ravi Zacharias the book, Seeing Jesus from the East, A Fresh Look at History's Most Influential Figure. And we'll chat about that today, along with the recent passing of his co-author and friend, Ravi Zacharias. Abdu, welcome to Charisma Connection. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure. And the pleasure is ours. Would you start by helping us get to know you a bit? How did you decide to follow Christ? Yeah, um, so I came from a Muslim background. Um, I was raised as a Shiite Muslim. The proper way to say it is Shia, but uh, commonly in, in the West we say Shiite. There are two different divisions within Islam. There's the Sunni Muslims, which are the majority, and the Shiite Muslims, which are the minority. Uh, but their, their beliefs and practices are largely identical. But I was raised to uh, be proud of that. And I was born and raised in the States um, in the Detroit, Michigan area, which has a, a heavy concentration of Muslims there. And uh, I was raised to be proud of being Muslim. And I was proud of being a Muslim. And um, I had this crazy, crazy belief that uh, things are true, even if no one believes them, and things are false, even if everyone believes them. In other words, um, this whole idea of relative truth just didn't cut it for me. Even as a young kid, I just didn't buy into this sort of postmodern idea. Uh, so I set out to try to prove Christian, uh, sorry, prove Islam to people who weren't Muslims, um, mostly Christians, because the area I grew up in, um, it's very diverse now. And it was starting to bud with diversity when I was uh, a kid. But we were largely like the, da- the dash of olive oil in the pot of rice. You know, uh, we were sort of uh, a, a, minor- a minority amongst a lot of uh, generally white people and a lot of um, Christians, at least people who called themselves Christians. Because back then, I'm a child of the 80s, you know, and uh, back then it was fashionable to say you were a Christian, even if you kind of didn't mean it. Well, I would engage with Christians and I'd ask them a question, you know, the question essentially was, why are you a Christian? And most people had no idea why they were a Christian. And um, in fact, would say, well, I guess I'm, uh, and they'd pick a denomination, I don't know, uh, Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Catholic or Methodist, whatever they were. And they'd say, um, because we go to a you know, Methodist church on Christmas and Easter. So I guess I'm a Methodist. And I'm like, um, was that a question or an answer? I'm not even sure you know um, why, you are, why you are what you are. So my follow-up question was essentially, um, why are you trusting your eternal soul 
to a worldview that someone else believes? Have you actually thought it through? In other words, tradition is your main reason, right? And um, they hadn't thought it through. Most of the people I had talked to hadn't thought it through, but I had thought it through for them. So I had given them a litany of reasons why I thought they were wrong. Um, uh, and then I would, when I created the vacuum, when I, when I sort of knocked the faith out of them, and I was an equal, equal opportunity faith knocker <laughs> outer of Say that again. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, being an equal opportunity faith knocker outer of her. Um, uh, it wasn't just Christians. It was if there was if there, I knew Jews, if I knew uh, Hindus or, uh, you know, uh, this kind of thing or atheists. It didn't really matter who you were. Um, but Christians were sort of low hanging fruit because they were so abundant mm-hmm. um, in the area I grew up in. So I would pick on them mostly. And it wasn't militant. You know, it was it was very conversational. I wasn't I'm never a, I, I never tried to engage even back then in a very confrontational style was much more conversational. But uh, when people found out that they had no real basis for what they believed, I would sort of create the vacuum by knocking the faith out of them and then substitute that with Islam uh, and say, this is why, here are the reasons why you should believe Islam is true. Well, along the so way... So you were an evangelist for Islam, really? Oh, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was more like said, conversational. I wasn't sitting on the street corners and none of that kind of stuff, but I was doing it in my conversational life. Um, but there were people, there were some Christians who actually knew what they were talking about. And I found them terribly <laughs> annoying because um, <laughs> not only did they respond to me uh, in terms of my objections, but they actually had some objections of their own that they asked me to respond to. And so that started me on a journey where I began to like study the Bible, not really to find the evidence for it, but the evidence against it, uh, like internal contradictions in these kinds of things. And uh, that's when I came across Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and following. Um, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and they come to him, and he says, Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Of course, meaning God's judgment. And then he says something fascinating. He says, Do not even think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, as if you know their, their heritage would save them. For I tell you, God could raise up children of Abraham from the stones. What he's saying there is tradition does not save you. Truth is what saves. And um, what bothered me about that was that that's what I had been saying. I asked Christians, why are you a Christian? They'd say tradition. I'd say not good enough. And John the Baptist is saying the same thing. But here's the interesting thing. He's not saying it generally. I believe that the, that the Holy Spirit uh, has, had borne aloft John Baptist's words over 20 centuries in a preserved book that I thought was corrupted, but later learned was actually preserved. The Bible was preserved, and the Holy Spirit brought this to my mind so that John the Baptist could ask me, why are you a Muslim? In other words, he's saying tradition doesn't save. And I had been saying the same thing, but I had not been asking it of myself. Why was I a Muslim? Ah, the tables were turned now. (laughs) Indeed they were. And um, I decided that day I was going to not believe something because it was tradition and not swallow the arguments in favor of Islam and against Christianity wholesale, unthinkingly. I was going to be as objective and as critical as possible. Well, that started essentially what amounted to a nine-year journey into the evidence and answers for uh, the Christian faith, theological, philosophical, historical, scientific, and of course, existential, those things that mattered to me. And I remember, you know, um, the, the pivotal point for me was this that 
um, Muslims say the phrase Allahu Akbar all the time. You know, they say this phrase all the time. Yes. And we, and we, and we usually we hear it in the context of some kind of terrorist chant or something bad happening. Um, but the reality is, is that most Muslims say this phrase all the time. The, the moderate and peaceful Muslims around us say it as a prayer and a praise. It literally means God is greater. So for the Muslim, the central idea of Islam and the central search of Islam is how do you find a God who is so great that he's worthy of worship, the greatest possible being, in other words. And of course, this is a, a, a fundamental search for all monotheistic worldviews. Well, I found it and I saw it in the cross that I once thought insulted God's greatness, the idea that God would die on a cross at the hands of the very sinners he created, I found to be insulting. But then I began to realize its depth and its beauty and its power. And I realized something. If God is the greatest possible being, as all Muslims believe he is, then he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love. And he would express the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. And if he didn't do that, then he wouldn't be the greatest possible being. Well, what is the greatest possible way to express love? It's not a mystery. It's self-sacrifice. And so if God does not express himself in self-sacrifice, but we humans can express love through self-sacrifice, then we can express love greater than God. And that cannot be possible. So I found myself thinking the cross is not an insult to God's greatness. It is a demonstration of God's greatness because it is the greatest possible expression of the greatest possible ethic, which is love. And when I realized that, I gave my life to Christ um, after a nine-year search. What an interesting way of looking at it, that you came to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it has to, to satisfy the heart and the mind. And I think God built me a certain way uh, to analyze things this way and ask tough questions. And he graciously brought people who could give me good answers. Mm-hmm. Well, you and Ravi Zacharias wrote Seeing Jesus from the East together. Mm-hmm. Uh, For any who might not be familiar with Ravi's ministry, he was an amazing apologist and speaker, and I believe he has now heard his well done in heaven. He passed Mm. away last month after a battle with a rare cancer, but what a brilliant mind and a caring heart he had, Mm. and Mm. I'm sure it was a joy to write this book with him, Abdu. How Mm. long had you and Ravi worked together at uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries? Well, we had known each other for years before I started working directly for RZIM. And um, what I, uh, I, so I, it'll be five years come October that I've actually been with the ministry on a full-time basis. Uh, but I've been an adjunct for a while. So I'd say we've been working together for about seven years. Um, and we had known each other for some years ahead of that when I was on my own doing ministry um, uh, uh, sort of on the side. Uh, so we've known each other for, for some time, so probably 10 years. Uh, as well, and uh, quickly became friends um, and had that affinity that, you know, that mutual affinity you have as an Easterner, uh, Ravi, and me as a Middle Easterner, we have shared so much of the same uh, ideas and so much of the same, like, loves. His, and, and it, his love of food and my love of food um, just uh, made it for an, uh, an instant match of, um, <laughs> of, of times and, fr- and, and fun and, and laughter and that kind of thing, yeah. As I've listened to some of the Ask Away podcasts, and I've heard about Ravi's love of food, which is just fantastic. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. You know, it's, uh, I, I won't share everything about this because some of it's intensely personal, but a lot of our folks, uh, a lot of his close friends 
who got to see him in his in his last days. And I got, I, had, I was blessed to be able to come down um, and see him and uh, spend a few minutes with him before he passed. Um, there was a lot of profound things he said, but some of the more memorable things he said to me, you know, we were in Sri Lanka to, um, to, to film some uh, curriculum, a video curriculum for this book, uh, Seeing Jesus from the East. And we went to a uh, wonderful Indian restaurant there, and one of the best I've ever had, and he, he had as well. And as we were, he was, we were just reminiscing, and he was lying in his bed, and I was sitting there. He said, do you remember the chicken tikka kebabs? Oh, my goodness. You know, he was sort of re, reliving that and all this, and I was thinking to myself, you're going to be enjoying the, the feast, um, uh, the banquet. When you get there, Ravi, uh, you'll have better than that. Uh, but I will remember that for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so how did you first get acquainted with Ravi? Well, um, so I first heard of Ravi in the first place when I wasn't a Christian. I was a, I was a Muslim, and um, again, still on this journey, and I was in a rural, a rural area driving through, and this is in the, the, the late 80s, early 90s. No, actually, it was the early 90s. So this is before they had you know, uh, uh, iPods even. So you couldn't digitally control whatever you heard on the radio or, on the, or over your radio in your car. So I'm taking this long, long road trip by myself, in a rural area and it was a Sunday morning. So everything on the radio was either Christian music or country music. And as a Muslim, I cared for neither. Um, so, uh, I, so my tapes had all run out, all the things I had brought with me, I was done listening to. So I hit the scan button on the radio. And for those who are uh, below the age of 35, the scan button allows you to go through different stations um, in the, <laughs> for five seconds and sample them on the radio dial. Well, I happened to come across this Indian accented voice talking about Jesus. And I'm like, Indians I know are either Muslims or Hindus. What is this? And I was fascinated because he was quoting, he wasn't only making a philosophical argument, which I found powerful, but he was quoting poetry while he was doing it. And yes. as, an, as an Arab, we love poetry. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge part of our culture, especially poetry that proves a point, that isn't just, you know, sort of a flowery affirmation of your loved one but also proves a point. And he was using it. And I thought, this man knows my people. This man speaks to my people. He speaks to his people. And he can speak to Westerners too. And I was fascinated by it. And I began to listen from there. So uh, I, I first met him. I was uh, in Atlanta. And he was writing a book on an Eastern worldview. And um, I had given my testimony on a CD um, uh, to his assistant. He heard it and called me up and said, hey, I'd love to interview you. Uh, for this book that I'm writing, um, would you spare some time? And I'm like, yes, I would spare some time. This is after I became a Christian. Um, and then we got to know each other that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, in this book, Seeing Jesus from the East, uh, in the preface, Ravi writes that the gospel is a story, mm. but he also writes that it's a story that invites tests for truth. And you found that to be so in your own life, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the things that's so, so appealing about the gospel, and I think that sometimes we lose this in the West, is that there is story. The Bible is full of story from start to, to finish. I mean, the story of creation to the story of how it's all going to end um, and how history will end, but eternity will begin. It's all a story, but it has propositional truths laced throughout it. In other words, it's not a collection of fables. When you look at other religious systems, a lot of times the fables teach a lesson, but they don't have, 
either testable historical propositional truths, or if they do have those, they don't have profound, I think, lifelong lessons in those. And so the Bible uh, gives us a story that is not only relatable, but it's testable. So the greatest example, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. The whole um, uh, Jesus's life is a, a three-year story that culminates in his uh, it culminates in his resurrection and his eventual ascension. And of course, the acts of the church and all this, and, and we, we're still in that story right now. But um, that story, the pivotal part of that story is the testability of the resurrection of Jesus. So as a historical matter, when he says in John chapter 2, after he's challenged, by what authority do you do these things? Or in other words, they ask him, why should we listen to you? It's a reasonable question. It's a testable question. They're saying, what gives you the right to say and do the things you're doing, including overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple courts? He says, when you destroy this temple, meaning his body, I will raise it up again in three days. That's either true or it's false. It's not a matter of opinion. and It's not a matter of a moral of a story. It's either true or it's false. If he died and stayed dead, they could dismiss him. But if he died and rose again as a matter of history, and that history was pivotal, my coming to faith, then he should be not only trusted, but he should be trusted above all others because he said, this will vouchsafe my authority. So the story of the gospel is important, but punctuated in the story are all these little verifiable truths, whether they're historical or experiential, or even just um, sociological. I mean, there's so many things that can go into, but that's one example of the way it can be tested. Mm-hmm. Now, in this book, uh, you write some of the chapters, and Robbie mm-hmm. writes some of the chapters, and I believe it's in one of your chapters that you call Jesus an Eastern bridge to mm-hmm. Western culture. Mm-hmm. So how important is it for Westerners in particular to understand Jesus as Eastern? How does that impact our view of the gospel? Well, uh, the first and foremost reason is that there's no doubting, there really isn't any debate, that Jesus is clearly history's most influential figure. Uh, so if that's true, then he's not only in, impacted the East, but he's impacted the West and changed the West in, I think, very, very positive ways. And so to understand yourself as a Westerner, you have to understand the impact that an Easterner had on the West. So um, I think that's the first and foremost thing we have to understand is our Eastern roots, in a sense, of uh, our senses of um, community and religiosity and all these things. But there's an important social phenomenon happening right now where people start to think of Christianity as a, a white man's religion and that Jesus is uh, sort of depicted as the icon of white Western imperialism of the past or even of the recent past that we need to jettison. Um, and if we understand Jesus in his Eastern context, two things will happen. One is that we will understand the authenticity of Jesus not as the icon of white Western imperialism. Rather, it's not that Westerners invented Christianity in order to control dark-skinned people in various parts of the world. Rather, the opposite is true, is that the olive-skinned Jesus, with his ideas of equality for all, of the um, raising of the status of women to their rightful place as equals with men, as the uh, teller of truth uh, in so many ways, he influenced the West. There was no equality in the Roman Empire until the advent and the breakout of the Christian faith amongst the populace of the Romans. 
That's when the whole idea of equality was birthed in the world's most powerful empire. So if we understand that, that it isn't the West that's influenced the East, but it's the East and the Middle East that um, influenced the West, we can see the roots of the things that make us good and valuable in the West, in the Eastern Jesus. But also, it helps the Easterner to see that Jesus isn't a foreign God. He is a homegrown, he's not, an, he's not an import. He is actually their export, and that he can speak to the Eastern mind, and so that he is the bridge between the East and the West, because the West understands their roots in Jesus, but the East can hear him speak in a way that speaks to their culture. He doesn't speak only Western language. He's transcultural. And I think that's really important because you see the, the communal nature with which Jesus spoke in an honor and shame culture like the East, but he also spoke to Western issues that we're experiencing right now. And I could go into a litany of these things. He speaks out against racism and ethnic strife. He speaks out against misogyny and all these things. These are issues 2,000 years after him that we in our supposed Western enlightened minds are only now coming to grips with, but this ancient Easterner from 2,000 years ago actually paved the way for the solutions. Hmm. And as our world becomes more and more globalized, the figure of Jesus is important. Mm. Yes, uh, well, it's because it's so translatable. You know, they had that sort of a, it's a, it's an irreverent statement, but whenever someone's famous or gets famous, whether it's Michael Jordan or the Beatles or whatever, they say, oh, he's bigger than Jesus. Um, and, <laughs> That's right. And the reason they say that is actually, it's a left-handed compliment in a sense, because it recognizes the universal affinity people have for Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I think about Jesus in so many different ways, and you see the pluralism that exists today, where um, you have different religious systems, and globalization has brought, has given us exposure to different religious systems, whether it's Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, or even forms of atheism, or uh, the New Age philosophies and that kind of thing. What I find fascinating is when you look at all these different systems, and they're all fundamentally different and superficially similar, they have a certain commonality, though. All of them, to some degree, tend to like Jesus. When you look at him, whether, okay, Islam calls him a prophet. He's not God. He's not the Messiah in the sense that Christians understand him. He is just a prophet who tells us to come back to true monotheism. In Buddhism, they consider him to be like something similar to a bodhisattva. He is a, an enlightened one. In Hinduism, many people will call him an incarnation of Vishnu, uh, as well, Gandhi loved the whole idea of who Jesus's life was all what his life was all about. Even atheists will tell you Jesus was a revolutionary teacher of moral principles that got him in trouble, and we we sort of like that about him. So it's funny because everyone wants a piece of Jesus from their different perspectives, and those perspectives aren't necessarily illegitimate. They actually focus on a correct part of him. The problem is they miss the most important thing he came to do. He didn't come to teach us moral values only. He came to save us from ourselves. And so whereas those worldviews in a globalized world, those worldviews pay homage to Jesus in the sense that they take what they like about him and then exclude the rest, they exclude his cross. And I think the goal of this book and the goal of a Christian to translate the gospel to other cultures is to reintroduce that cross 
into the message so that people who like him and have an affinity for him won't just take pieces of him, but will take the whole thing. Because if we don't do that, if we like Jesus for certain reasons, but we rob him of his cross, then we do what Judas did. We betray the Son of Man with a kiss. Hmm. Well, um, from that serious answer that you just gave, I want to ans- I want to ask one more question that mm-hmm. goes back to food food again. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. <laughs> okay, because it's from your book, all right, yeah. and, and you write, the curry and cumin of the gospel's originality has been replaced with the ketchup and mayo of complacency, <laughs> angst, guilt, and virtue signaling. <laughs> now, curry and, cu- curry and cumin do seem original compared to what I put on my burger as an American. Uh-huh. And but, but there is really a lot in that sentence. Could you talk that out a bit? Sure, but my first recommendation, Chris, is that you should try some curry and cumin in your burger next time you have one. So oh, interesting. <laughs> give, that, give that a shot. Give that a shot. Uh, so what I'm trying to unpack here is that um, sometimes Jesus loses his potential. He loses his potency in a Western mind because, you know, we have this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, that we get used to something so much that it loses its tang. It loses its sense of surprise. It loses that. And um, when we sort of McDonaldize Jesus and make him um, ubiquitous, you know, he's constantly, his, the iconography about Jesus is a little too much. We lose that sense of originality to him, and um, we have a complacent faith that uh, makes Jesus no more than, um, it's, I'm going to say a funny, funny phrase, he's no more than our Savior. Now, I say that because being the Savior is magnificent, but he's also Lord, and we lose that part of him sometimes, and we don't understand the, the revolutionary nature of the call to radical living that Jesus actually calls us to. Um, so an example would be the way in which he speaks to people and he rattles the traditional cages around him. So Jesus was Eastern, so he's a traditionalist. As a Middle Easterner, he loves tradition. He, he, he bathed in tradition, but because of their collective society, he's a collectivist as well. He values the collective. Um, and we in the West sort of value the individual a little more than, I think it's good, our individualism, but it has its shadow sides as well. Well, Jesus is a collectivist. So he values the collective, and in an honor-shame culture, you have to think about the collective. Here's the thing, though. Jesus wasn't such a collectivist that he forsook the rights and the dignity of the individual. He often saw the collective trampling on the rights and dignity of the individual. So, example, when you have him um, uh, speaking to the Canaanite woman in, um, uh, in, in, in uh, um, Matthew chapter 14, the Canaanite woman, a non-Jew woman, comes and speaks to him, and there's this banter back and forth where she wants help. She wants her daughter to be healed, uh, and Jesus is expected by the crowd to shun this Canaanite woman. She's a non-Jew from the Canaanites, for heaven's sake, the persecutors of the Jews back in the day, and she's a woman. She shouldn't be talking to this rabbi in the first place. And so Jesus dignifies her in such an amazing way. People think it's misogynistic what he says or even racist what he says, but it's not. He says, um, it's not right for the food meant for the children to go to the dogs. In other words, she's saying, you, a Canaanite woman, is asking me, a Jew, for help. But should I help you? I mean, after all, you know, we believe that you're less than us. And he recognizes her savvy, and he lets her in on the conversation. And because of her savvy, she says, yes, but even the, the scraps that fall from the master's table fall to the dogs. 
And he says to her, great is your faith, woman, and it shall be done as you ask. In other words, he uses her to teach a lesson to all the people around him who were just trying to shoo her away. But he didn't shoo her away. He spoke to her and let her be involved in the conversation. In fact, he dignified her by making her the teacher of the culture around her, that a woman has a right to seek help and to speak with the highest of authorities. And a Canaanite is invited into the kingdom. He deals with both misogyny and racism in one conversation while speaking to a woman. And if we lose that, that's a Middle Eastern way of doing things. And Westerners can lose that because they don't understand the Eastern way of doing things. But when you get it back, you'll, the, the ketchup in the mail will fade and the spice and the aroma will come back. And you'll see this guy, this Jesus, man, he stirred things up. Maybe I ought to stir things up, too. Maybe I ought to get involved in someone's life who's not like me. Mm. He sure was original and is. And uh, I appreciate your pointing us to him as Savior and as Lord. Mm. This has been a fascinating discussion, Abdu Murray, and I want people to go and learn more about you uh, check out your podcast, which is The Defense Rest, and they can uh, see that on your website, which is RZIM, which stands for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, rzim.org. Thank you, Abdu Murray, for sharing your insights with us from Seeking Jesus from the East and also your memories of Ravi Zacharias here on Charisma Connection. Thanks, Chris, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Listeners, don't forget to drop by cpnshows.com to discover some of the new programs that we're adding to the Charisma Podcast Network. Perhaps you'll be interested in the one called Headline Prayer to learn how to pray through the news or Faith to Live By as you learn to live in spiritual victory. So you can go to cpnshows.com to learn more about those podcasts. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Charisma Podcast Network. Steve and Joyce Strang are the founders and owners of CPN. Dr. Steve Green is the executive producer of the Charisma Podcast Network. We intend to honor God with every podcast and remain thankful to our advertisers and supporters who make these podcasts possible.